Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Wednesday, March 17th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Why Analog TVs Never Had Channel 37? Spoiler, the answer includes aliens. The rise of Bitcoin ATMs. And a selection of self-reported side effects from the AstraZeneca vaccine. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So back when we actually used analog TVs and ultra-high-frequency or UHF signals to supply our hundreds of TV channels, there was one channel missing, Channel 37. In the analog era, Channel 37 was never used in most of North America. Why? Well, unlike buildings that skip floor 13, it wasn't a matter of superstition, but rather aliens. Okay, not exactly aliens, but like, kind of? Maybe? So as Ernie Smith reported over at Tedium, back in 1931, a radio engineer at Bell Laboratories named Carl Jansky was trying to figure out the source of some staticky radio interference. Quoting APS News, It was a challenging assignment. Jansky had to design and build special instruments for that purpose, most notably a large directional antenna system mounted on a motor-driven turntable that rotated through 360 degrees about a central vertical axis, riding on a circular track of the wheels of a Model T Ford. It was dubbed Jansky's Merry-Go-Round. Once he analyzed all that data, collected over many tedious months, Jansky identified three basic types of static. Local thunderstorms, distant thunderstorms, and a third he described as being composed of very steady hiss static, the origin of which is not yet known. His careful wording came at the advice of his supervisor, who cautioned him against making overbold claims, lest his finding not hold up to further investigation. But Jansky suspected that the signal originated in the center of the Milky Way galaxy, making it the first known detection of extraterrestrial radio signals. End quote. There was a lot of scientific reasoning that went behind that suspicion, reasoning that resulted in three published papers, a lot of acclaim, and Jansky basically creating the field of radio astronomy. But for Jansky, that would be the end of the story. Being as it was right after the Great Depression, there wasn't a lot of interest in more theoretical research that had said itself it wasn't of any threat to telecommunications, so Jansky kept working at Bell for the rest of his career without delving any further into the field he had birthed. But other scientists were keen to explore this new horizon of radio astronomy, especially in the post-war boom of the 50s. Among them was George McVitie and George Swenson, who both helped build a radio telescope at the University of Illinois. In a oral history interview with the Royal Astronomical Society, McVitie said, quote, We decided, for engineering reasons, that we could only build a really big one if we had a frequency round about 600 megahertz. Otherwise, the perfection of the reflector, if we went to a shorter wavelength, was not something that you could do by the acre, at least not at that time, which was the late 1950s. And so we picked upon this 610 megahertz band as the observing frequency. End quote. And continuing from Smith in Tedium, quote, The area around the 610 MHz band has, over the years, gained a reputation as being important to scientific research because of its placement in the context of two other frequencies important to radio astronomy, 410 MHz and 1.4 GHz. As space and astronomy writer Bob King of Universe Today put it in 2013, 
Without it, radio astronomers would lose a key window in an otherwise continuous radio view of the sky. Imagine a three-panel bay window with the middle pane painted black. Who wants that? There was just one problem. The sudden, high popularity of television made the general bandwidth area where the telescope operated, 608 to 614 megahertz, a bit of a hot commodity. It was literally the spot where Channel 37 was supposed to go, and broadcasters wanted access to that channel. End quote. This kicked off a many years back and forth between the scientists and the FCC, with the scientists asking to block Channel 37 from any TV stations using it, and the FCC being reluctant to do so. It's also important to note that this was happening right around the time that ultra-high-frequency signals became standard on TVs, having just been an optional thing before, so there were a bunch of local stations vying for any channel that they could get, which in several cases meant Channel 37. And for a while, the FCC compromised with a ban on the use of Channel 37 within a 600-mile radius of the telescope, and nowhere being allowed to use it between the hours of midnight and 7 a.m. But then, scientists went to the media. The controversy escalated to front-page news in the New York Times, and that, as it often does, changed things. Things got a little ugly for a hot minute there with people accusing the FCC of not understanding and not supporting radio astronomy, but the pressure finally mounted enough for them to enact a 10-year ban on any station using Channel 37. And speaking again in the oral history interview, McVitie speculated on the FCC's change of heart, saying, quote, Somehow, the news got around that here was this new way of listening to little green men on Mars. This is what radio astronomy seemed to the ordinary public, and the FCC was preventing it from being developed in the United States. We got rumors, George particularly from friends he knew, that gradually a huge accumulation of letters arrived at the FCC protesting against this non-support of this new science, whatever it was, and that this finally persuaded the FCC that they'd better give in. End quote. And that 10-year ban eventually became permanent, although in 2000, the same band as Channel 37 was approved to be used for wireless medical telemetry services, like devices that wirelessly monitor a patient's heartbeat and stuff like that. It was deemed that this minor use would not interfere with astronomical pursuits. And interestingly enough, Channel 37 is not the only one to be reallocated for non-TV uses. Channels 38 through 69 are now allocated as the 700 MHz band for cell service. Originally, it was just 52 to 69, but it was expanded again in 2019. Basically, we just keep taking away more TV channels and reappropriating them for cell service. Which, I mean, I guess makes sense. The ultra-high-frequency channel map in the U.S. nowadays only includes channels 14 through 36. The lower ones are on very high-frequency bands. But since most of us just stream things over Wi-Fi anyways, I guess it's fine. I do like Ernie Smith's point about Channel 37, though. He concludes, quote, The tale of Channel 37 reflects one thing. Without resistance, a commercial use case will usurp a non-commercial use case for a given resource. Think about this in terms of other things that have nothing to do with astronomy, like the internet. A year or two ago, there was a big conflict involving who owned the .org top-level domain, with commercial interests attempting to hone in on something intended to support nonprofits. 
The only reason it didn't happen, just like the Channel 37 saga, was because people in the world of nonprofits and technology came together to lobby against it. Ultimately, in the case of Channel 37, scientists were able to save a small sliver of what was mostly going to be otherwise used commercially. Perhaps it looked like static to everyone else, but it was worth fighting for. End quote. In places as unlikely as Billings, Montana, and Michigan's Upper Peninsula, you can now find Bitcoin ATMs. Bitcoin ATMs saw a 177% rise over the last year, but not because there were so few to begin with. There are currently over 16,000 Bitcoin-exclusive ATMs around the world, and if you open that up to other types of payment terminals that additionally accept Bitcoin, the number rises to over 28,000. Now, if you, like me, missed the memo on Bitcoin ATMs becoming a thing, here is a quick primer on how they work, quoting Bitcoin.com. Bitcoin ATM, abbreviated as BATM, is a kiosk that allows a person to buy Bitcoin using an automatic teller machine. Some Bitcoin ATMs offer bi-directional functionality, enabling both the purchase of Bitcoin as well as the sale of Bitcoin for cash. Bitcoin machines are not exactly the same as traditional ATMs, but work in a similar fashion. Bitcoin ATM kiosks are machines which are connected to the internet, allowing the insertion of cash or a credit card in exchange for Bitcoin. They look like traditional ATMs, but they do not connect to a bank account, and instead connect the customer directly to a Bitcoin exchange for a localized and convenient way to purchase Bitcoin in person. End quote. But are they really necessary? Is it just a stunt? Why would someone use one? Well, maybe they get paid in cash, don't have a bank account, prefer interacting with a physical device, or want a certain level of anonymity. Quoting Reuters, There are now Bitcoin ATMs in every state except Alaska, as well as in Washington, D.C., according to an online map by Coin ATM Radar. Reuters journalists spotted recent additions at gas stations, stores, and restaurants in North Carolina, South Carolina, rural Pennsylvania, and the outskirts of New Jersey and New York City. Las Vegas-based CoinCloud has 1,470 machines around the United States and expects to have 10,000 by year-end, said CEO Chris McAllery. Although there were concerns that the pandemic might hurt business, foot traffic actually rose during lockdowns. We expected the worst as COVID hit, but stimulus payments came out and that helped quite a bit, McAllery said. Some people took stimulus and bought digital currency with it. End quote. And while there are people using these Bitcoin ATMs, CoinFlip, the largest Bitcoin ATM provider in the U.S., saw their revenue increase by 360% over the last year, they're still not super popular. Reuters spoke to Quadcoin founder Mark Shoiket, who's been scouring Bitcoin ATM maps and traveling to Bitcoin ATM deserts to convince business owners to install the ATMs. He said, quote, I just assumed there was demand and people wanted Bitcoin everywhere. But he also copped that he removed a few last year that never returned a profit. Quoting Reuters, At Grassy Point Bar and Grill in Broad Channel, New York, an employee had to plug in a Bitcoin ATM for a Reuters journalist to see how it worked. And only a handful of truck drivers have stopped by the Pioneer Auto Museum in Murdoe, South Dakota, to use a coin cloud machine installed five months ago, said owner Vivian Saunder. 
CoinCloud offered her $200 a month to house the machine and periodically sends maintenance people to check on it from Rapid City, 140 miles away. I didn't understand why they wanted to put one here, said Sonder. It's a seasonal business in a town with less than 500 people. End quote. But despite being a bit overeager perhaps to get these Bitcoin ATMs in locations that will see little use, the market is inarguably growing. And for any of you that prefer Dogecoin, good news, CoinFlip announced earlier this month that all 1,800 of their terminals are ready for people to buy and sell Dogecoin. Much ATM, so crypto. So you've probably heard about several European countries pulling AstraZeneca vaccines from distribution due to some vaccinated patients experiencing blood clots. And I'm not going to get into that too much here except to briefly quote courts. The precautionary suspension is standard practice when it comes to new drugs, yet it has caused understandable concern in Europe, where it's being interpreted, in part due to misleading reporting, as a sign the vaccine isn't safe. In reality, scientists have not found evidence the blood clots were caused by the vaccine. Further, even the self-reported cases of blood clots is limited to 1 in 167,000 people, which is essentially the general prevalence of blood clots in the population anyway. Commonly used drugs, such as birth control pills, which are sold without a prescription in some countries, have a much higher incidence of blood clots. It's 1 in 1,000 cases for birth control. End quote. The blood clots are just one of many self-reported side effects that are currently required to be reported because the AstraZeneca vaccine is still under emergency use authorization. Having been given to over 11 million people in the United Kingdom, there are now 63 pages worth of self-reported side effects. Now, before you think I am scaremongering about vaccines by pointing out how many side effects have been reported, let me be clear. These are self-reported symptoms, and most of them were only ever reported by one person. One out of 11 million. But more than that, some of these absolutely could not have been caused by the vaccine. Like, some are pretty funny, and that's why I'm sharing them. Pure humor to break the tension surrounding this whole AstraZeneca situation. If you hear these and decide you don't want to get a vaccine because you may join the two people in the UK who reported experiencing chapped lips afterwards, well, let's just say that is definitely not my intent here. So without further ado, here are some highlights from the hundreds of self-reported side effects. So there's the chapped lips, there's also excessive earwax production, five people reported breath odor, there's also crying, tearfulness, and anger, as well as anal paritis, which basically means itchy butt. And there's a few that I'm pretty sure were caused by something else, including an insect bite, seasonal allergies, electric shock, genital herpes, and pregnancy. There's also someone who reported diet failure, and another who reported alcohol poisoning. Now, I will say that 402 people reported thirst, so that seems legitimately significant compared to the others, but another four reported daydreaming. So, but possibly my favorite, 89 people reported flatulence. The AstraZeneca vaccine makes you fart more. You heard it here first. 
Now, most of these symptoms are no fun to experience, and it definitely seems like more than a few were a result of confusion in filling out whatever form they were given, but honestly, even if some of these do occur as a result of the AstraZeneca or any other vaccine, I will take excessive earwax and an itchy butt over catching COVID or spreading it to someone else. So, listen, there's just been a lot of whale and walrus news this week, and I'm not sure what to do with it all, so here's a walrus dump. For the past week, a humpback whale has been hanging out in the San Francisco Bay. Ever since 2016, whales have been taking a detour there during their annual migration, but they're not usually expected until late April. And they didn't used to show up in the bay at all. Experts suspect it's either the changing of the ocean patterns or an increase in population as a result of the whale hunting ban that has caused their new route. This news is a bit sadder, but a deceased sperm whale has washed up on the shore of Phillip Island in Australia, and the stench of the poor creature decomposing can apparently be smelt from up to 6 kilometers or 3.7 miles away. Despite the unpleasant aroma, wildlife officials say they'll be leaving the whale to decompose naturally, and have instructed residents to stay at least 300 meters away. They came to this decision after investigating several different removal options, but perhaps being familiar with the famous exploding whale of 1970 in Oregon, they decided it was best to just let nature do her thing. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll put a link in the show notes to the video of the exploding whale, don't worry, it's not really graphic, as well as an episode of this show from last summer recounting the story and the new Exploding Whale Memorial Park. But now in walrus news, a walrus spotted on Valencia Island in Ireland is thought to have come from the Arctic Circle, where he apparently fell asleep on an iceberg and woke up thousands of miles away in Ireland. We've all been there. But that is all the marine mammal news I have for you today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow. 